title of this talk is Real Yogi versus Fake Yogi, and that's what this uh, podcast is going to be about. And we're really going to be talking about uh, what um, is the difference between meditation and the use of cannabis. I think it's a very important topic because people have been promoting that um, everyone should smoke cannabis because, you know, the Indians and the Lord Shiva did it and it's something spiritual. And we're also going to talk about what is nirvana, uh, what is the experience of nirvana or what you call uh, that happens when you undergo meditation uh, from the research we have from science, not by people having opinions on it or theories on it. And then we're going to talk about what the data shows that's going on when you actually um, smoke a lot of weed, uh, acute or uh, heavy usage, you know, chronic usage. And what I'm going to share with you comes from uh, not only a scientific perspective, but also a my own personal history of uh, uh, being a meditator, being essentially on a, a, a yogi, uh, and having a rich history of it. So let me just step back and share some of that with you. You know, I grew up in India, many of you know. I was born in India, I grew up in Bombay, but I also grew up in a small village in deep South India. And the environment that I grew up in was very, very diverse environments. Bombay was vastly different than the than the village that my grandparents were farmers in. But one thing that was common uh, was that my great-grandfather was what you call a shaman. He was a farmer, um, but he also practiced the ancient arts of meditation, yoga, doing um, a sadhana, which is a, a form of a devotion and sacrifice uh, to God, whatever you want that, whatever you believe that to be. This was in the Hindu Shaivaya tradition. So I was exposed to some wild stuff people would call, um, you know, uh, uh, different than what they've experienced. And I saw my uh, great grandfather go into deep meditation, um, into what you would call channeling. My grandmother um, uh, was a healer on weekends. She would uh, heal people using the traditional arts of Indian medicine. So it was a very different environment than in fact most Indians experience today. Um, so I was fascinated um, by uh, how all of this was done. My grandmother had no degrees, uh, did not have any formal training. She had tattoos all over her arms. Again, she worked in the fields for 16 hours, but she was a healer. So I was fascinated in the overall aspects of uh, meditation, yoga, healing, etc. from a very, very young age. And in fact, that's what my, drove my interest in medicine. But one of the things um, I also learned was that um, through um, my uh, grandmother that there were really two different yogis and it was a story that she shared with me. And before I stared, share that story, let me just uh, share another story of, of, uh, of Buddha when it comes to God. You know, there's a very famous story and it goes something like this, there's variations on it. Someone comes to Buddha and they ask him, is there a God? And in fact, there were three people lined up. His cousin, Ananda, was next to him. And the first person comes up and he says, is there a God? And Buddha says, there's absolutely no God um, at all. And uh, that person leaves. Um, the second person comes and, and, and he asks the great Buddha, is there a God? And he says, yes, there is a God. The third person comes and he asks, is there a God? And Buddha the smiles at him and doesn't really say much. Now his cousin watching all this 
asks, Buddha, why are you, you know, giving all these people different answers? Why are you lying to them? And Buddha made a very, very interesting uh, observation. He said, look, the first guy uh, who I said that there absolutely is a God was living such a lascivious life. Um, he was not taking care of his family. He was a complete hooligan. He was a criminal. And so I told him there is a God. So at least he would get balanced and move in the direction of living a much more uh, balanced life going in that direction. The second person who came um, was a believer in God, was meditating all the time, uh, was doing yoga all the time, was not taking care of his family, was not doing any work. And Buddha told him there is no God. And the third person was even balanced. So that story gives you an idea at a very high level that the notion of spirituality itself needs to have some balance and you could go in different extremes on it. And the, and the idea was balance. Now my grandmother um, shared with me that in the Indian yoga tradition, there, the idea was to achieve oneness with God or nirvana, however way you want to experience that. Uh, many of the traditions, religious traditions at the spiritual level have the concept of being one with God. Um, uh, when uh, Jesus talked about when two eyes become one, you, you can see the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of heaven is within you. Many traditions talk about connecting with your creator. Now, my grandmother said in India, there were two types of yogis. The one yogi was trying to take the fast track. Um, and the second yogi recognized that the path to enlightenment or nirvana or oneness with God was a much more difficult and a much more uh, longer process. Um, uh, for example, in that tradition, um, there's a story of Shiva or and his gurus and his devotees. When they took on new students, they would first of all make sure the students were ready for hard work, uh, for consistency, for discipline, to achieve uh, you know this connection. But during their training process, some of the um, mythical history says that uh, the new students were given soma, S-O-M-A, and no one really knows what was in there, but it was a concoction of different herbs. But they were only given it once, very rarely, for them to get a almost a virtual experience of what enlightenment could look like. They were told that this was not the real experience. In fact, it was like a virtual reality. And you're not supposed to do this all the time, but it was just giving you a glimpse of what enlightenment was like. Again, um, it was a, a, a pharmaceutical way to have a small glimpse of this. So that, um, that concept um, uh, was a part of their training, but you weren't supposed to be hooked on, onto you know, taking external drugs, etc. The interesting thing is some of the uh, fast track yogis who didn't want to stay with the discipline, which was arduous, you had to, by the way, in many of those traditions, you weren't, you didn't just start doing yoga and meditation, you actually did work, you learned how to read and write, um, build a house and do carpentry and labor. And at the last part of your training, in one or two days, you were taught yoga and meditation, because the issue was, that's actually easy, uh, versus living a disciplined life. But those students, the sort of the um, students who didn't want to pursue that or didn't want to put in the time, essentially were the kids in the back of the class, um, uh, would start doing the soma and the drugs or ganja. So what ended up occurring was you ended up having 
two different types of yogis, the real yogis and the fake yogis. In fact, my grandmother said the fake yogis would always talk a lot about the spiritual path and how enlightened they were, share all these experiences. But if you looked at them, they were living a pretty um, uh, uh, undisciplined, pretty false life. They weren't doing the work and weren't living an honest life. Whereas the real yogi was um, doing the work, they were on the path, um, you know, and they were contributing in a very meaningful way to the world. So the concept of the real yogi and the fake yogi was something I was introduced to uh, at a young age, a ganja guru or the non-ganja guru. Um, uh, so uh, I've had an interest in this because um, uh, m many years ago, someone said, hey, Shiva, you should do pot. And you have to understand that I've had a distaste for it because when I grew up in New Jersey, people know that I not only grew up in India, but I was a teenager, teenager in New Jersey, went to the public school systems. I saw some really, really smart kids. This is in the 80s, before the levels of THC weren't anywhere near what they are today, sort of fry their brains. I mean, these were smart kids um, and they sort of ended up becoming uh, dropouts, didn't really progress because they were using heavy amounts of marijuana, very young age. And we'll, and we'll get to that, why this is important, the age. Um, so I didn't really you know, care for it. In fact, uh, I had a, a natural resistance to it because it didn't feel right of what it was doing to the body. Um, my life was really about recognizing that the body is actually an incredible chemical factory. And if anything, we should be um, learning the secrets of how our body functions, either through traditional systems of medicine, which I studied Ayurveda Siddha, or through modern biology, because that's how we unlock the secrets and the mystery of the body. And if we could do that, we could actually um, learn a lot more um, about who we are uh, and how to live a healthy life, uh, interconnect with nature, all those good things. But several years ago, um, someone had me uh, try uh, pot. In fact, he not only gave me one cookie, which is very strong, and this is modern pot, 2000 pot, a lot of THC, but he gave me six cookies. And the interesting thing is it did nothing to me. And uh, I'm being extremely honest with you, which may blow some of you away if you do a lot of uh, uh, marijuana cannabis. I had no reaction versus the person that was there and the other friend who did a half a cookie were completely blitzed. And it made me really wonder why I didn't have any reaction. And, and the other friend also had, was not a chronic user or an acute user of either kind. And in my view, um, there was something within my chemistry that was able to, uh, in many ways, protect me from the THC, the high level of THC input. And, and uh, over the past several years, because of the research I've been doing, we've been able to understand why. Let me step back a little bit and share with you. And by the way, to anyone listening to this, um, I believe whatever you want to put in your body is your right. This is not a moral issue. People can take whatever you want. It's, it's a right of freedom. And uh, obviously, you know, I'm a big proponent of uh, the notion of freedom and people able to do uh, what they want to do. The issue of whether cannabis should be legalized or prohibited or decriminalized, that's a political issue. What I'm going to talk about today is really uh, the scientific data, the scientific issue. And, um, and I just want to put this in context, you know, you know, I have four degrees from MIT, I have a PhD in biological engineering, and these kinds of uh, achievements with all humility are not something you get overnight. It takes quite a bit of effort 
um, to understand the physics, the biology, and the chemistry. In fact, even to go through the process of getting your PhD. My PhD is in systems biology. But one of the things that came out of my PhD work, which I want to share with you, um, I'm going to transition to this slide, is Cytosolve. Um, Cytosolve, by the way, it's a company now, and Cytosolve came out of my work uh, at MIT, and you, you can see that I'm not a pharmaceutical guy, so people trying to promote uh, was, was that I'm into uh, pharma, I'm an agent of pharma, you need to get off of that because if anything, I'm a, a big proponent of natural living. But Cytosoft, you can go to the website, uh, you know, bit, you know our, our slogan is Big Pharma is a Disease, We are the Cure. And the work that I've been doing in this field, and I'll just give you an idea of what is Cytosolve. Cytosolve emerged out of my PhD work in 2003. Some of you may know in 2003 is when the Human Genome Project came to an end. Interestingly enough, the irony of the Genome Project was that we discovered that uh, we don't have a half a million genes. We don't have a million genes. When we went into the Genome Project in the early 90s, we thought we knew a worm had around 20,000 genes and we thought we as human beings were more complex must have around um, you know half a million genes but it turned out that we only have 20,000 genes and in 2003 when I came back to MIT the notion was we shouldn't just be looking at the nucleus but we should really understand the chemical reactions in the body so if you think about the body as this or the cell in particular in fact the National Science Foundation in 2003 had put forward a grand challenge is could you mathematically model the entire human cell? So imagine the cell being a, a reactor of all different chemicals. Um, the issue was could you mathematically model that? And, and um, that's the work I took on. Uh, as you know, because of my deep interest in medicine uh, for many years and because of my love of computing, having created the first email system, having created EchoMail, having done many, many things in the world of IT, I thought this was great. So when I looked at this problem, I didn't see it as a biology problem or computer science problem. What I knew was that people were starting to, or people had published in, in the literature. So for example, if you looked at something to do with Alzheimer's or something to do with cancer, people had published biological pathways. So a scientist, for example, who's studying cancer, and I'll do a whole nother podcast on this at some point, um, on, on Cytosolve, uh, may study a set of chemicals, as, a, as um, I'm showing here, uh, which are essentially these ball and stick diagrams for people who are just listening on a podcast. Imagine you have a bunch of chemicals reacting together, and some researcher may spend their whole lives just trying to understand how five chemicals react. So if you look in the literature, if you want to understand um, how any large-scale biological function, cancer, uh, inflammation, Alzheimer's, there's thousands or tens of thousands of papers written in these fields and these within these papers people do experiments in test tubes or animals and they publish these ball and stick diagrams. Well in 2003 these ball and stick diagrams were being converted to mathematical models which means you could predict the motion or the the input output how much one chemical rose or not. And what I ended up doing was for my PhD work, I created a new technology called Cytosolve, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E, which essentially said I could take any field of research, you know, go to the scientific literature's public, extract from those the molecular pathways, individually model them, and in a magical way through some very powerful computing technology I developed, 
um, put it all together. And what that allowed me to do was, and, and by the way, this was seen as an impossible problem because people were trying to do, you know, very, very large systems like this, you know, very complex systems and they weren't able to do it because it was unmanageable. And what I did was I essentially broke up the problem into smaller problems and created some very powerful computing technology that would put the jigsaw pieces together. So to put it simply, what we were able to do was go to a field of research. Let's say there's, for example, I'll give you in the field of osteoarthritis, there's around 20,000 papers written, knee osteoarthritis. We could take out the relevant papers, which may be 5,000 through a curation process. From that, we could identify the molecular pathways or reactions. You know, each of these papers have a little piece of the puzzle. They have a, a little piece of these little chemical reactions. And from that, we could convert them to models and then quote unquote orchestrate or glue the models together using Cytosol. So that was what I had created. And um, I'll do another podcast on this. We had we started using Cytosol um, when we created it into a company. We discovered a combination therapy for pancreatic cancer, which we got allowed by the FDA. Um, we used it to expose the fact that genetically engineered foods, for example, have no safety assessment standards. I'll do another podcast on that. But when it came to cannabis, I had spoken at the at the free speech rally, um, uh, you know, because I, you know, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of freedom, as you guys know. I spoke at the Boston free speech rally. This was a cannabis rally, and after that, I got many people, scientists, very esteemed scientists, writing to me and saying, "Shiva, um, cannabis is not safe." So it made me actually start exploring this. And more recently, Alex Berenson had written a a, a book um, which did the correlation side of it. What Berenson did was his wife is a psychiatric MD, and she basically said, look, most people in the psychiatric wards, at least this was a high end, had all done cannabis. And as Berenson went through this, he was the first to really, as a book called Tell Your Children, really start putting together, compiling data, which showed a significant correlation between heavy usage of cannabis, particularly young kids who used it, and the onset of psychosis and schizophrenia and violence. Now, when you brought this up to the person who smokes pot or the people who are promoting pot, uh, they don't really want to talk about it because the the theme is, um, you know, everything is fine. Pot doesn't cause any type of, uh, and I'll come back to the screen, pot doesn't cause any type of issues. And so I started exploring the data myself and it was quite clear of the linkage between cannabis, psychosis and violence. Um, in fact, it turns out uh, the National Academy of Medicine in 1999, who wasn't really taking a position by 2017 in their uh, multi-hundred page report, they had predictably concluded there is a significant link, highly significant link between cannabis usage and the onset of psychosis, schizophrenia and violence. And, and, and you should read it. So, so remember in science, the way the scientific method works is you can have an observation of some phenomenon. You know, you see something happening over here, which causes something to happen over here. That's called a correlation. And then you as a scientist may then make a hypothesis of how that's occurring. And then you have to come up with a model and then you have to actually do the research. Well, Cytosol is really an engine for taking a hypothesis and understanding the mechanism. So you can have, you know, A, you know, increasing A causes B to increase. Higher cannabis usage increases psychosis. That's a correlation. 
But the issue is, can you understand the causation taking place? And that involves a mechanistic understanding, and that's what Cytosolve allows us to do. So um, what I'm about to share with you is uh, unpublished work. We're gonna be publishing it soon. In fact, I'm likely gonna do a book out of this, but it's really about understanding what happens um, with cannabis at the, at the biomolecular level. And, um, and, uh, and before I get to that, uh, just to give you the power of Cytosolve, you know, in India, when people used to mix herbs together, um, people would ingest it and it would have beneficial effects or potentially harmful effects. But the yogi was a person who understood how to mix herbs. By way of example, um, some of you may know the number one cause of death in Asia is liver cancer. In the United States, it's heart disease. In Asia, however, it's liver cancer. But Indians get one third less liver cancer than Chinese. Um, um, and no one really understood that until people found out it was related to the fact that Indians consume lots of turmeric, which is a yellow spice that you see in, the, in Indian foods, which is composed of, and that yellow spice is composed of uh, an, uh, an active ingredient called curcumin. So what I ended up doing was I said, you know, it would be interesting to understand curcumin's effect uh, on inflammation because it's a predecessor to cancer and how it combines with other things. So for example, if you go to Whole Foods, you'll see a lot of products with curcumin in it and sometimes people combine it with resveratrol. How does that actually work? So there's theories, you know, you take curcumin, you get lower uh, increase in inflammation, you mix stuff together, you reduce inflammation. But with Cytosol, what I'm gonna share with you is we can actually discover the why, the mechanism. So um, in this case, what I'm showing you here is we looked at all the, about 6,000 papers that have been written about curcumin, went through those, extracted out the molecular pathways. And what you see here in this diagram is the outer circle is a cell wall, the inner circle is a nuclear wall, and every line and circle you hear is coming from actual uh, experiments that were done in the wet lab. And what we're seeing here is all the places curcumin hits and inhibits inflammation. So you can see over here, curcumin on this end over here is uh, uh, affecting inflammation, which um, uh, on the right side, PG2, if you can see this, which is involved in um, when you get um, uh, inflammation. And by the way, this is the same place that in fact, on, on this far right side, that where, PG, uh, where curcumin stops COX-2 from creating PG-2, uh, in fact, that's the way that Advil works. Uh, Advil is known as a COX-2 inhibitor. So at a high level, curcumin has an amazing effect as an anti-inflammatory effect, and we were able to chemically show that with Cytosol and mathematically show that. The next thing we did was we looked at how where resveratrol hits. There's a lot of data saying that resveratrol also lowers inflammation, and you can actually see where resveratrol interconnects. And then we can combine both of them like my grandmother would do to see what's actually going on and we can run what's called an actual in silico, which means on the computer without killing animals, without wasting our time in the lab, doing another experiment, we can do it on the computer. So what you're seeing here, to keep it simple, not to get it too complicated, there are four rows here and the right column here is a, uh, a value which is associated with a molecule that detects inflammation. So to keep it simple, if you look, we go from 0 0.15 to 0 0.05, 0 0.06 to 0 0.03. 0 0.15, that first row, is when we've created inflammation in the body. We're not giving any curcumin, we're not giving any resveratrol, 
And so you have high inflammation. When I just give curcumin, the second experiment, computer experiment, you notice it goes down from 0.15 to 0.05. And this is what's also been shown to occur in the wet lab. The cool thing is that we're doing it on the computer and we're getting the same results. And same here if you just give resveratrol, it goes from 0.15 to 0.06. Bottom line is individually, curcumin and resveratrol both help to lower inflammation. But what about when you combine it here, you can see what's called the synergistic effect or the holistic effect. I've reduced curcumin from five to three, which is 40%, the, and I've reduced the amount of resveratrol, which I before gave as five units, by 60% to two. So before I was giving five units of curcumin, I had a reduction of inflammation from 0.5 to 0.05. I was giving five um, units of resveratrol, and it, we dropped from 0.15 to 0.06. But when I reduce the curcumin and I reduce the resveratrol, respectively by 40% and 60%, what's amazing is you see a further lowering of the, of the inflammation by to 0.03, almost 200% decrease. And this is called the synergistic effect. That's what's so powerful. This is why in traditional systems of medicine, people said food was medicine because food was combinations of very powerful molecules. In India, people use curry, which is a combination of not only turmeric, but coriander, uh, uh, you know, asafoetida, uh, cardamom. It's a mixture. Every family has their own combination, but you don't just give one uh, medicine. So the reason I wanted to share that with you is that cytosol provides this very powerful way to understand combinations at the molecular level. So my team of researchers, uh, I really wanted to understand this because, you know, given what's going on in cannabis right now, uh, it's basically every Tom, Dick and Harry is getting involved in the cannabis business. So um, I want to understand what's going on. Now to give you a background on cannabis from the ancient traditional perspective, in the Arab, there are a lot of, uh, as I like to say, some of the potheads, quote unquote potheads, who like to always um, point to, oh, the Lord Shiva or the Indians did a lot of cannabis. Well, and it's so great for you. Well, that's actually not true. In the Ayurvedic text, uh, as I mentioned, small dosages, very small dosages, and particularly the leaf and the stem, which have low levels of THC, in fact, equal amounts of CBD to THC, were recommended at very, very minute dosages on certain occasions. Like in India, on holy, people do bong mixed with milk, um, but once a year. But otherwise, it was seen as a poison. Uh, in one case, it was seen at very low dosages of nectar, but if it was taken regularly, it was seen as a poison. It was called a tamasic herb. So uh, anyone who says uh, that this is something that the Indians promoted and it's a great thing is actually lying. That's not a true statement. It's actually uh, uh, a revision, a revisionism of the actual culture. But the, the, the more interesting thing here um, is that um, in modern times, um, uh, during the 60s, late 60s, um, cannabis, uh, as was brought into the United States and, and used more prevalently during the 60s movement, the level of THC was extremely low. To give you some idea, the THC to CBD content was 14 to 1. So if you had a 500 milligram joint, may, uh, it was about 1 to 2% THC, which means you were getting... Five milligram, five milligrams of THC, 
Um, and if you passed it around, maybe you got around 2.5 milligrams, um, which is what people did. That was sort of the standard usage. Now there was Sensamia variety, which started coming in, which was the, the female uh, flower, much higher dosage of THC, and that could really knock you out. But the early 60s, late 60s, there is very little uh, amount of THC in the cannabis that was in the United States. Um, as cannabis use started to grow, but by the 80s, something happened with the anti-drug movement and parents started waking up and cannabis use actually was dropping. And again, if you, this is all stuff you guys can go research on your own, the history of it. Sometime around the 90s, um, uh, the cannabis lobby started developing because cannabis usage was actually going down. People like George Soros put in about 100 million starting at that point and the narrative that started getting created was we're throwing blacks in jail, blacks are being in incarcerated, um, and, and uh, cannabis can solve every disease. And you'll, you'll note um, uh, that this is a common theme when those in power want to support a certain agenda. They always want to talk about blacks and minorities, uh, wanting to help women. It's always a downtrodden, it's, it's reframed. And then you start seeing the explosive growth of cannabis until today. But starting in mid-2000 to now, the level of THC is 25 times more. It's about uh, the average uh, joint has around 25%, 20 to 25% THC. Now, yeah, you can grow various varieties, but by and large, the cannabis that is bred today, you know, again, it's a female plant. Um, in many ways, they quote unquote molest the plant. I could argue they grow it in greenhouses. It's only the female plant, so you, and which is where the bud is, and you have high concentration of THC. So today, the cannabis is a delivery vehicle for THC. There's a great movie called The Insider with Russell Crowe. Uh, people may want to uh, see that movie when you get a chance. But in that movie, um, Russell Crowe, who's a whistleblower scientist with Big Tobacco, basically talks about how the cigarette became a delivery mechanism for nicotine. Look, uh, prior to the 1900s and the 1800s and before, very few people died of uh, tobacco. Uh, it was only when they started combining the Indian and the American varieties, put it into the cigarette with all sorts of other constituents to really make it a nicotine addictive uh, delivery system. That's when we have the problems. And what we have today, uh, anyone who's trying to say, oh, the cannabis that grew in the mountains of India and the yogis smoked it. Well, the yogis that did smoke it didn't, by the way, do too well. And I'll explain why shortly with the data that we have. Um, but it wasn't... The, the vehicle for enlightenment. The vehicle for enlightenment was you were supposed to do your work, do your discipline, have a job, work hard, and um, through that process you learn yoga and meditation and, and wasn't um, taking exogenous substances and I'll, and I'll explain that also. So what you see is today the cannabis is a THC delivery mechanism. Um, uh, I know people who give away cannabis cards medical cards, but let's be honest, it's really a vehicle by and large to get high. So when we started looking at cannabis, we started um, looking at the data that Berenson and others had put together, and there's a lot of data out there, paper after paper after paper, from the medical community showing the link between cannabis violence and psychosis. I'll give you one example. A study was done with 12,400 high school students. The researchers who went into this study went into it with a very open mind. In fact, they were pro-cannabis. In the abstract of their study, they, uh, they wanted to look at the effect of uh, 
cannabis and alcohol and the combination on violence and aggression. They went into it with the presumption that alcohol was essentially going to have a much more deeper effect. What they found out was quite interesting. Uh, they found out that um, out of the 12,400 students, that there was a 3x increase in aggression, 3.3 times, of those people who are heavy users of marijuana. There was a 2.7 times, so much less, about uh, 20%, 20 to 25% less, um, of those people um, who were uh, users of uh, alcohol alone. And then the combination was a 6x effect, six times more. So it almost seems like the combination of cannabis and something like alcohol increases, has, like you saw with the turmeric and the curcumin example, which has a beneficial effect, this has also a synergistic effect in, um, and, in, in, in doing the opposite. So, um, and by the way, um, anyone, if you wanna ask questions, please do so. So I'm gonna share with you some of the science now, which comes from, uh, we have started mapping all the scientific literature that's been written to date on cannabis and the biomolecular reactions. So what I'm gonna share with you, again, I'm not making a moral judgment here. Anyone can smoke whatever you want, you know, do whatever you want to your bodies. That's your freedom, it's the American way. Uh, and I'm not gonna talk about prohibition versus decriminalization or legalization, that's for the politicians. What I'm gonna now talk to you is as an MIT scientist who spent you know, a good part of my life in engineering and physics and biology, what we've discovered so far. So let me go over to this. So, and the title of this talk is really Cannabis and its role in schizophrenia, uh, this part, and psychosis. Um, you could also call it fake guru versus real guru. So, but let me uh, share with you some stuff here. What you see here, is a fact that, um, and, and we'll, be, we'll, we'll be publishing a more detailed paper on this, um, is that THC on the top part here, if you can see this, THC has a very different uh, effect here um, uh, in terms of uh, affecting cell death, inflammation, and lowering your endocannabinoids. So what do I mean by ECB? I just brought up that term, endocannabinoids. What do I mean by that? Um, sure, anyone who wants it, someone said any questions, uh, God and King, of course you can ask questions. Um, but, um, so we're talking about uh, when you look at your body, or particularly your brain, your brain um, communicates through nerve signaling. There's a presynapse and a postsynapse, which means, think about it as almost like two, if you remember the old telephones, imagine taking one ear of the telephone and putting it to the mouthpiece of the other tele telephone. One ear of the telephone is what's called the presynaptic neuron and the, and, uh, uh, the, the mouthpiece is called the presynaptic neuron which is sending the signal and the hearing piece which is receiving it is called the postsynaptic neuron. Well, signaling takes place. So throughout your body as you're listening to this, thousands and thousands or millions or trillions of nerve signaling is taking place where signals are traveling down your nerve, hitting that postsynaptic neuron, and there's a gap between the, uh, I'm sorry, the presynaptic neuron and the postsynaptic, and chemicals are transferred. So a nerve signal runs to the presynaptic neuron when it hits it. Chemicals are then um, transferred across the gap to the postsynaptic neuron, which then carries a signal onward to the next 
uh, nerve. So it's very much like if you ever uh, were in track and field and you did uh, a baton, you know, the relay race. One person had the baton, presynaptic neuron, they handed it to the next guy who took it with his right hand, consider that the postsynaptic neuron, and then they ran and they went to the next person onward and onward. So this is how nerve signaling takes place in your body. And your body does, um, and, and, and this is modulated, this entire nerve signaling process throughout uh, your body is modulated by something, which, uh, a set of two, two particular, uh, or a set of chemicals known as endocannabinoids. Endo meaning inside, cannabinoids meaning the cannabinoids within you. So one is anandamide is one of those endocannabinoids and, uh, and there's another one which we'll also talk about AEG. So there's two endocannabinoids within your body that have been discovered today. These endocannabinoids facilitate the modulation of this nerve signaling. Consuming varying levels of THC can lead to cell death, which is apoptosis, uh, which um, is, is a process that, you, remember, cells grow and die. Every, you have about 100 trillion cells every day, 10 billion cells are born and they die. THC also um, increases inflammation from the papers we put together, but it also lowers endocannabinoids, and that's how inflammation gets occurred. So you have your own internal endocannabinoids. In fact, vertebrates, invertebrates produce endocannabinoids, and this goes back 500 million years ago. And it doesn't, and, and it occurs in species which weren't even next to marijuana. So some people say, oh, we have endocannabinoids within us, therefore we must be, we must be needing external cannabinoids which come from cannabis. It's not true, again, big lie. Um, but the point of this first top diagram is that THC has an effect in increasing cell death, causing inflammation because it lowers your own internal endocannabinoids. And the analogy I'd like to give here is um, there are bodybuilders who start taking testosterone. So your testes produce testosterone. Um, some bodybuilders say, well, I want to have more testosterone. So what they do is they start taking more testosterone into them. And what that does, it actually shuts down your body's production because your body says, oh, I have this steroid, so I will shut down my production of testosterone. And this is what the body does because what's happening is when the THC receptor, when THC is induced, and again, it occurs at varying levels, and this is where we need to do research at concentration levels, that that THC competes with the receptor which is on the post, on the presynaptic neuron, which has what's called a CB1 receptor. And that's where your natural endocannabinoids lock into and control your neural oscillation. So let me be clear. You have nerve signaling taking place on the presynaptic neuron. There are things called CB1 receptors, cannabinoid receptors, and your endocannabinoids land there and they modulate this beautiful uh, neural oscillation of signaling. But when THC comes, it too lands on that endocannabinoid receptor, the CB1 receptor, and your body thinks, wow, I have enough cannabinoid, so it stops producing its own ECBs. Now, on the bottom part of this thing here, you see that endocannabinoids modulate GABA and glutamate, very important neurotransmitters which modulate dopamine levels. You don't want to have too much dopamine, you don't want to have too little, and the endocannabinoids, which is what you create in your own body, modulates this. And by the way, 
Uh, we can have a longer discussion about endocannabinoids. Someone just wrote, apparently ingesting growth hormone shrinks the testes. Uh, that's also true. So you have to be very careful on when we take exogenous things that our bodies is an amazing chemical factory that it can make on its own. We have to be extremely careful when we uh, do these kinds of things. So the endocannabinoids that are produced are a natural process of uh, your body's function, your body's chemical factory. How does it do that? Longer discussion, but at a high level, you know, one of the things that turns out the right ratio of omega-3s to omega-6 fatty acids, you may have heard of this, the right fats, you know, uh, our diet at one point used to be one to one, um, uh, one to one omega threes to omega sixes, and today it's one to ten. Our the standard diet has ten x more omega sixes, which is the wrong kinds of fats compared to the omega ones. And what that does is it essentially inhibits your own endocannabinoids. Not, a, not proper sleep, not, not proper relaxation, not eating proper foods. All of these affect your endocannabinoids. So saying, hey, let's take exogenous cannabinoids, let's bring in THC, um, you need to really reconsider that. Now, our research also showed the following, and these are facts. So any of you guys, um, uh, someone's writing, have you smoked weed, have you done this? Look, um, I'm gonna tell you that um, you can smoke all the weed that you want or not smoke weed. That has nothing to do with the science here. We're talking about a millions and billions of man hours of scientists who have done the work, which is what scientists do, um, not just sit there and say, I'm going to try this weed or that weed. That's not science. You have to go down to the molecular level. Now, the, there are a couple of flowcharts here. Let me walk you through the far right. Acute THC, again, the boxes that we have here, there's uh, behind these boxes are uh, thousands and thousands of papers that we've congealed together with Cytosol. Acute THC means where you do a ton of, you smoke a lot of weed or a lot of cannabis or you take THC in one dosage. What that's known to do is it's known to increase theta oscillations. And by the way, we'll talk about CBD. Someone said, what about CBD? We'll get to that. Today we're talking about T THC because the, the, the cannabis of today is 80 to 1. The ratio of THC to CBD is 80 to 1. So we're really talking about cannabis, um, the joint that people smoke or vape, etc. But acute THCs, imagine you do a ton of it. Well, our research shows that the acute THC modulates, um, affects, the CB1 receptors to such an extent that it decreases theta oscillations. And I'll explain what that means, theta oscillations, which then leads to psychosis. So we have actually figured out the mechanisms because decreased theta oscillations is one of the precursors of psychosis. Chronic THCs where you're doing, you know, smoking every day. And that what that leads to is the accumulation of THC, which atrophies your gamma oscillation. So your, your body has theta, your brain waves are alpha, alpha waves, theta waves, gamma waves. So the, the chronic use, the accumulation of THC, unlike the acute THC where you take one big shot, atrophies gamma oscillations, and that disrupts neural oscillations. Now, the latter part, what's interesting is when people are exposed to THC at a young age, the research shows, for example, the research that was done in, in, in Denmark and Sweden and New Zealand um, consistently shows that 
those people who smoke THC at a young age have a 5x more chance of getting uh, or onset of schizophrenia and psychosis. So, and remember, the latest research shows up until the age of 20 to 30, your, your body, your brain is developing neurogenesis, which means the brain is laying down its pipelines, it's laying down its fibers, it's actually growing. And so exposure to THC at a young age, we've been able to understand the mechanisms, how in adulthood, it lowers GABA release. Remember, GABA is a very important um, uh, neurotransmitter. And the, and, and the disruption of GABA's ability uh, and disrupted GABA leads to increased neuronal, neuronal firing, which um, leads into lower frequency of neural oscillations. So you have lower frequency of neural oscillations through, uh, from a childhood standpoint. And in fact, what the data shows is the reason that they've, they've been able to prove this is that if you increase GABA, that you go back to normal frequency. So use of THC at a young age disrupts the neurogenesis process, disrupts GABA, lower frequency of neural oscillation, which means you've disrupted it. You can bring it back by infusing with GABA. That's what the research shows. So um, uh, let me talk about schizophrenia. Um, what our research has shown is that when, when you have schizophrenia, what's really taking place um, from the research to date is there is a, uh, the dopamine two receptors, as you see here, are greater than dopamine one receptors. What this means is that um, uh, schizophrenia has a chemical basis that science has shown more dopamine two receptors uh, versus dopamine one receptors. In addition, there's a genetic component, which is the AKT1 gene. There's a mutation in that. So schizophrenia is onset by D2R receptors, dopamine 2 receptors being greater than D1 receptors on the cell surface as, and or AKT1 mutation. Now, if you look at the left part here, what is going on here is when THC inhibits CB1, what that really results in is you consume more arachidonic acid, which by the way is the fuel for the creation of your own endocannabinoids. You need a certain amount of of endocannabinoids, but because THC is consuming the arachidonic acid, what that does, it increases inflammation, reduces endocannabinoids, and this is an increased dopamine release, which is what is exhibited in schizophrenic patients. And this also occurs when you're, you're under, by the way, uh, stress, for example. This, this does the same thing. When you, when you yourself under massive stress, you, get, you reduce your own endocannabinoids and you get increased dopamine release. So, in addition, when THC inhibits a CB1 receptor, it also inhibits adenine cyclase, which also inhibits AKT1. You, you deactivate this particular molecule, which, which supports the formation of schizophrenia. What I'm sharing with you here is that we have discovered the molecular mechanisms by which THC disrupts and can onset schizophrenia and psychosis. Over on the right, to put it simply, THC inhibits endocannabinoids, which decreases synchronization of neuronal firing, and endocannabinoids, you know, maintain your neuronal firing. But in conclusion, what I want to share with you here, and I'm just going to go back to video here for a second, is this. Um, when you want to, uh, the last part of what I want to share here is, uh, you know, the real yogi, 
versus a fake yogi or the fake guru versus a real guru. It comes down to this. What it turns out is, I believe we have actually um, gone into, and again, we need to do more of the science, but I believe what I'm gonna share with you is, again, it's unpublished, it's, it's, it's very powerful information because we've actually uncovered the mechanisms by which the, the endocannabinoid system is disrupted by THC and really evokes what my grandmother said, the, the fake yogi versus a real yogi. And let me share that with you. What you're seeing here um, in the PowerPoint here, let me bring it up for myself also, is um, what you're seeing here now is the, the uh, fake guru on the left side and the real guru on the right side. Um, and to those of you listening on the podcast, I'll explain. So there's been quite a bit of research over the last 30, 40 years done on meditation. What meditation, those people who meditate, which means sit down, do the discipline of meditation, they actually have increased theta waves, increased gamma waves, and increased alpha waves. Um, they're able to have better memory recall. They're able to do, in fact, a lot more things better uh, when you go into the meditation, meditative state. Um, in, in the normal case, the mechanisms of your body, this entire neuronal firing, when it's done right, there's a certain oscillation. You can think about it, a, you're driving in your nice SUV, it has a certain suspension, it has a certain oscillations. Um, uh, it, uh, when you hit a bump, right, uh, a good suspension system knows how to maintain that. That's called good feedback. So in the normal system, you have a normal theta wave, normal gamma, normal alpha waves, which are a result of the normal mechanistic firing of your nerve signaling. And GABA, uh, one of the important neurotransmitters, is not being disrupted. When you start meditating, you actually go into an enhanced state where you have increased theta waves, you have increased alpha waves. Now, um, and, and there's a whole mechanism there, which I can do a whole podcast on, but just keep it simple that meditation um, increases the frequency of these uh, uh, theta and alpha and gamma waves in a very beneficial way. And you get essentially, I don't want to say superhuman capabilities, but you get en enhanced capabilities. Now, what happens when you smoke weed or cannabis? And by the way, let me be clear. We're not talking about doing one joint here at a party. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about limiting your freedom. Again, I want to keep stating that this is not a moral issue. Uh, you know, as a PhD scientist, uh, studying in this field, I'm just fascinated to understand the mechanisms. What we've been very, very pleased to discover is that I think we're putting together an overall theory of this. Cannabis, THC, disrupts the standard neural oscillations by competing with the CB1 receptor. And what we're seeing here is that those who smoke either acute or chronic, there's a disruption that takes place and you have reduced theta waves, which affects reduced working memory. You also have reduced gamma waves, which is what leads to psychosis. And it also reduces alpha, and we're unknown how that affects things. But what we do know is that the chronic adult use, the chronic youth use, and the acute use has significant biochemical effects on affecting the reduction of the theta waves, reduction of the gamma waves, and reduction of the alpha waves. So look, is this gonna do this to everyone? Absolutely not. We all have a spectrum. You know, uh, I um, want to restate that. You know, for example, if you look at tobacco um, or alcohol, there are some people they smoke a lot, 
of tobacco. They drink a lot. They live fine. They live up to 100 years or more, right? And there are others it affects much more harshly. You know, you, you, you smoke a few cigarettes or they didn't do that much. They got secondhand smoke. They end up with emphysema and other diseases. So this is a spectrum. We're not saying, uh, we're not trying to make this a moral issue. What we are saying, what this research is revealing, the, revealing at the biochemical level is those people who are schizophrenic or psychotic, they already have incidents, you should probably stay away from uh, cannabis. Those people, who, obviously youth, where the brain is being formed up until 28, and you have, let's say, a history of schizophrenia and, and, um, and psychosis, should be concerned and probably stay away from it. Then there are a lot of people who do it, you know, occasionally. And that's not what I'm talking about. Then we're talking about people who are heavy users, you know, smoke every day and acute users. Um, those people can go in either direction, depending on their state of health, their, you know, uh, are they eating the right fats, do they have the right diet? They may be able to get away with more or less. Some of the research is fascinating. It's showing where people over 30 to 40 years were absolutely fine. And then suddenly they have a psychotic incident. They think their next door neighbor was a raven or a cockroach and they go shoot him. I'm not saying this is going to happen in all cases, but I'm saying it's interesting to note that overall the accumulation of THC suddenly re results in, in, in a, in a uh, disastrous event taking place. What I am showing here is that we are going down to the biomolecular level, looking at all the research objectively, and we are discovering that you know THC significantly affects the endocannabinoid system in a in a um, in, in in a multiplicity of ways. And let me come back to video here. So the net of what I'm trying to say here is that if you go back to the 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 sort of the wisdom of the ages. Our body is an amazing chemical factory. No one can deny that. Our body can produce uh, all sorts of dopamine and, and all sorts of uh, amazing pharmaceuticals. And so the art in living life is to find out how we can uh, optimize our body. I would think you would want to do that too if you could learn how to do that. The ancient traditions, the wisdom traditions, always talked about treating the body as a temple and figuring out how you modulate your own being to optimize it and and exogenous substances like cannabis particularly thc and all these things were seen as things in in their best case you use very rarely people have been um, asking what about cbd well we need to research this so my position on this is you know we have through my center the international center for integrative systems which is a research and nonprofit foundation a systems approach, we have started doing the research using the tool, um, this very powerful tool called Cytosolve. And I believe we need to fund more research, really fund research instead of hearsay. And I think the larger political issue that I wanna end with is, look, um, two months ago, uh, Marlboro just put in $2.1 billion into big marijuana. And we need to understand the dynamics and the dialectics here. There's a lot of people, um, or there's a lot of people, the growing number of people, more and more people are gonna have serious issues as they become chronic and active users of THC. And there's gonna be a few people are gonna become trillionaires and billionaires out of this market. And you need to make a decision 
based on education versus ignorance. And my goal here is to give you a, a body of knowledge so you can make a wiser choice. Because the THC, the cannabis of today, is not the cannabis that grew, you know, perhaps thousands of years ago in the Himalayas. It is not the cannabis that was even, uh, you know, 40 or 50, 60 years ago. We're talking about a different drug, and it is a drug. There's enough evidence to show that 70, 80% of people who use heavy drugs also use cannabis. Is it a gateway drug? Well, the correlation is there. Should everyone, uh, am I trying to make uh, uh, cannabis and the use of it, trying to tell everyone morally what you should do? Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that the body is an amazing chemical factory, that the nerve signaling in the body runs through a beautiful harmonic pattern of oscillations that's beautifully modulated um, and supported when we eat the right things, when we keep our own endocannabinoids levels, when you meditate, in fact, you get enhanced capabilities, the real yogi. And when you take high dosage of THC, in the cases I'm talking about, you can become the fake yogi thinking you're getting somewhere, but you're actually hurting your body. Anyway, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope I've been able to impart something that's been of value. But um, be the light, have fun, have a great weekend. Thank you, be well.